The Second Act podcast is brought to you by Chin Whiskers Beard and Hair Care. Chin Whiskers is an affordable, Canadian-made, 100% natural men's grooming line. It's available at your local Tommy Guns Original Barbershop, Amazon, or at chinwhiskers.ca. Welcome to the Second Act Podcast. Welcome to Episode 4 of the Second Act Podcast. We are very grateful for all of the feedback we've received on Instagram, LinkedIn, as well as all of the podcast platforms. The original idea for this was to just chat with some interesting people and talk about their stories and see how anyone can end up on a wild journey if they stick with it. We've been really fortunate to have some great guests recorded already and a few really cool folks agree to appear. A professional photographer who fell into this, a renowned chartered accountant who has worked all over the world and cashed it all in to start a business of her own, and an early executive from LinkedIn will be sharing their stories with us in the upcoming weeks. I hope you are as excited to listen as we are to share. Today we pick up our conversation with Robin Regeer, who to this point had lived all over the world, fallen in love with hockey, and had proven to himself that he could do it professionally. Not to mention recovering from a horrific car accident that resulted in two people tragically losing their lives. We will pick it up right after he told us about the effects of that. That's uh, that's that's a pretty incredible story uh, and, and a lot for, for a young man to, to have to deal with, especially with, you know, the importance of kind of the next six months of his life, which, you know, obviously you're, that leads into you, your recovery and, and you, you eventually go to Calgary to, to play hockey for the flames. And, and, you know, you're, you're young, uh, you, you play a certain style. Calgary is a team at that point, uh, probably looking for, for some of what you bring. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, about the way Calgary was and, and the team it was and, and how you fit in and, and a little bit about how many years were you in Calgary? It's, uh, 11. Yeah, so so talk about the kickoff of 11 years in Calgary. Yeah, well, the, the kickoff started when uh, they were kind of keeping an eye on my recovery. Um, in the hospital, they, they said, you know, I needed to be able to uh, use crutches before they would release me from the hospital. And they weren't worried about my care at home because of all the, the nurses we had in the family. So um, I was able to do that. And I think it was uh, 10 to 12 days, I think I was in the hospital. And then uh, I was able to to move home, and then um, they they would check up the the flames would check up on me with their physios and and the programs that uh, that I was on, uh, and then they uh, they contacted me kind of formally um, at the beginning of September. So the crash happened July fourth, uh, beginning of September. Uh, the flames are getting ready to uh, host their training camp, and they just said, you know, Robin. Uh, we, re, you know, we understand what happened. We just like to bring you in for, for maybe a week to just see how your re- rehabilitation is going and, and kind of what shape you're in. And then uh, we'll send you back home. And I said, actually, you know what? I, I just uh, started skating. I told him because uh, a couple of days prior to that, I'd, uh, I'd been able to get on the ice up in, uh, up in Beardies, just north of, uh, north of Roster in there and skate just without an equipment or anything like that. But uh, the recovery was actually going quite well for me. So uh, I told them that and they said, oh, great, you know, just let's, let's come in for a week and, uh, and we'll check you out and we'll send you home. So uh, I got to Calgary and I packed a week's worth of clothes and things just progressed. They had me on the ice uh, 
all the time I was working out. And I ended up uh, actually staying for 11 years. I brought a week's worth of clothes, Gordon, uh, stayed for 11 years. So uh, I, I ended up uh, signing, uh, signing with the team uh, later on in training camp. Um, I, was still, uh, I was still too, um, too young to play in the, in the uh, minor league team full time, but they wanted me to get me in some games before potentially uh, looking at me with the big club. So they sent me down to St. John, uh, New Brunswick, to play for a couple weeks on conditioning. So I did that, and uh, I think I played five or six games. Uh, I think I had zeros across the board, so nothing, uh, <laughs> nothing significant there. But, you know, I remember running into being uh, lined up uh, next to a guy by the name of Dennis Bondi, who's a kind of a very tough guy down in the minors, and he tapped me on the shin pad uh, before they dropped the puck. And I'm like, oh, oh. Like, uh, you know, I don't really want to yeah. fight this guy. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, hey, I, I heard about what you went through and I'm really proud of you and I'm glad to see that you're back on the ice. You know, and that was it. And I was just, it made me feel really, really good as a, as a person to to hear that from uh, from a guy like that. And the fact that I didn't have to drop the gloves with him made me very, very happy. <laughs> and, um, and if you need one, I got you, he said. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so I, I spent two weeks there, and then uh, they called me. The Flames called me back. Uh, they called me up, and uh, was able to uh, play my first game with uh, with them on on the road. So it was it was a pretty whirlwind kind of uh, start to my my pro career, um, but one where back to what I what I'd been through, my appreciation of of the situation that I was in um, as, as a 19 year old, um, I, I, I felt I fully realized how fortunate I was and I wanted to make the most of that situation. I, I, uh, I just, I played as hard as I possibly could. And uh, Brian, uh, Brian Sutter uh, was the coach of the Flames at the time. We had a very weak team in Calgary. So back to uh, the, the situation, if, if I would have stayed in Colorado, they had, a, they had a strong team, and I, I probably wouldn't have even had a shot at making the team. Uh, but because Calgary was a weaker team, and they were in kind of a rebuilding mode, they had some good young players, uh, Jerome Ginla, Derek Morris, some of these young guys. Um, I, I had a chance to step in there and, uh, and play. And that's what you need as a young player, is you need to play in order to improve and develop and learn. And uh, I was given that ability in uh for that uh in calgary yeah and that to your point i guess like after appreciating this opportunity so much after the summer that you had um the only way you can affect that change is to to have the opportunity and and through it all you you ended up in a position where you had that opportunity and, and you got to go out and really kind of dictate uh, the outcome of it, and and obviously, I mean, uh, eleven years with with the Flames, um, you must have made a, a reasonably favorable impression. Well, from from going uh, going millimeters away from severing my my patella in in July to then you know playing my my first NHL NHL game that next season, um, yeah, it was just it was an amazing experience for for me, and I and I wanted to just maximize that as as best i i could and you know there was some yeah there were some interesting things uh, along the way like brian brian sutter actually when i was in ottawa 
uh, we were on the road in Ottawa and, you know, he says uh, to me, you know, Robin, you're not, you're not playing tonight. You know, you're getting skated after. I was like, okay, that's fine. So I went and started skating and, and then five minutes into my, into my bag skate really is he comes to me. He's like, well, you're ready to play tonight. And I was like, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> so, so that was how, that was how, you know, he told me I was going to be in my first NHL game. And, uh, you know, unfortunately my, my parents at that time, they just didn't, uh, weren't able to, to hop on a flight in right. and get out there and see it. But shortly after that, they, you know, they came out to, to Calgary and, and, you know, your, your son is in a hospital bed, uh, months, months before, um, uh, you know, involved in a, in a, in a kind of a horrific crash and a pretty tough situation. And then months later, uh, there they are watching, uh, watching me playing an NHL game. So it was a, it was a wild roller coaster of a ride. And, and I guess you can kind of say that about the whole, the whole time you were in, in Calgary. I mean, you, you guys had some, some big runs and some good teams. Uh, obviously, um, I think um, Jerome McGill is a, a legend in the NHL. So you, so you got to, to spend a lot of time playing with him. Um, Maybe to talk a little bit about the uh, the '04 run and and a little bit about that uh, kind of how how that you know mentally affects you uh, the way it ended uh, a year lockout coming back from that and see and just talk you know how what that was like it had to have been a wild ride. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, Jerome McGinley, like I don't think anyone that's um, well, I, I I've got to know him quite well. He is the most competitive person I've ever met in my life. Like it would, didn't matter if you were playing ping pong in, in the dressing room, having a little bit of fun, he wanted to win. Didn't matter. We, we used to play computer games on the, on the road trips, uh, you know, that back then in Calgary and, and he wanted to win every single game. Like the guy is just hyper competitive. And uh, you know, I think that was one of the reasons why, he was, uh, you know, as personally as successful uh, as he was with with hockey. He was very, very driven and very competitive. Um, talking about our our team in in kind of leading up to the two thousand four uh, playoff run, uh, we actually didn't make the playoffs that year until uh, I, I believe it was game eighty out of eighty two that we made the playoffs. But Daryl. Daryl had come in and uh, started coaching us halfway through the previous year. And he was big on understanding matchups, both personally and as, as a team. And so we would do segment uh, five game segments and he would talk uh, about how our team was doing and where we needed to be. Well, leading up to the 2004 playoff run, he came to us, uh, I forget how many games were left, but he said, what team do you, we want to meet in the, in the playoffs? And we all thought Vancouver. And he's like, yeah, I agree. Vancouver's the team that we want in the first round. So we ended up nailing down the spot with two games remaining in the regular season, uh, but we got Vancouver in the first round. And we just felt that uh, they gave us the best best chance. And... It was crazy. Like I was, I would have been 24, I think. So still fairly young, but uh, uh, I don't think Calgary had been in the playoffs for, 
I, th- I believe it was like seven or eight years. It was a substantial amount of time. I'd never played in the Stanley Cup Finals before, and most of our team really hadn't. And so the city was re- was very excited. You had an all-Canadian matchup, uh, which was exciting. And uh, it was just a, it was a, it was a very hard fought series. Uh, Game six, I remember we were down three goals, I believe going into the third, we ended up scoring three, tying it up and Brennan Morrison scores in triple overtime in game six to send it back to game seven in, in Vancouver, Uh, in Vancouver, um, a wild ending to game seven. Um, We were up by one goal and the puck uh, Jovanovski's in the box, I believe, for cross-checking or something like that. The puck goes back behind their net. They come. P- fans are throwing stuff on the ice. There's sticks. There's jerseys. There's this and that. Uh, they don't blow the whistle. They keep coming up the ice, and uh, they kind of come in. And it's a real quick, short little two-on-one with me in in front of the net. And I wasn't able to stop the pass. Kind of caught in no man's land. I think it was Naslin and Cook or some, and they score. And then the game is tied, and you know, with seconds remaining, uh, not very long remaining in in, uh, in regulation. So now we've we've just blown the lead, and we go into the dressing room in Game Seven, and uh, we're all sitting there with our heads hung low, realizing how close we were to wrapping things up and winning the series. And Rhett Warner stood up, and Rhett had been um, in numerous playoffs here. He'd been to the Stanley Cup finals twice already with Buffalo previously and with Florida. And he just said, you know, we've got this opportunity. Jovo's in the box still. Um, you know, yeah, it sucks what happened, but let's go out there and do something about it. And as uh, most Flames fans know, uh, Marty Jelena starts uh, to create uh, just a, an amazing legacy by, uh, by scoring the goal and eliminating the, the Vancouver Canucks uh, right there at the start of overtime, and we win. Uh, we win the first series. So that that's like, and that was just the start of the playoffs, you know. And then uh, you know we can continue on to talk a little bit more. Like you know we meet Detroit, and they're a powerhouse, an absolute powerhouse. And Daryl Sutter comes in and says, "Well, we've got no business winning this series. You know, look at what they say in the media. You guys are, you know, you're going to lose in four. You're going to lose in five. Everyone's saying it." And we were able to, I think we split the, the first two games there in, in Detroit. And, and we just started building, continuing to build our belief in, our, in ourselves and our team. And we ended up beating them in se- uh, six, I believe. Jelena, again, eliminating them. Um, and continued on. San Jose, uh, same thing. You know, that, that series was crazy in that I think we won the first two games in San Jose. We think everything's great. And... We come back to Calgary and they win the next two games in Calgary. And <laughs> there we are with an even, even series now. And, and so, you know, those, those wild emotional swings are, are, are tough to deal with, but you just have to try to find a way. And, and then we won the next two games and eliminated them. Uh, and then, you know, the, the last series, the Stanley cup finals was, uh, was Tampa. And, you know, people remember the, the fight between Vinny LeCavie and Jerome McGinley you know, back to the competitiveness of Jerome, you know, he, sh- he was showing everyone he wanted to win. He wanted to put us on our, our back as a team and, and win. And, you know, for us, we, uh, we were dealing with some injuries, which, which really hurt us. Um, but I think we ran out of gas a little bit, but the injuries were ultimately what, what affected us. And, you know, we, we won game five, 
Uh, we lost game six and we ended up losing game seven by one goal, two to one uh, in Tampa. And, you know, with that failure for us coming so close to the Stanley Cup, you know, game after game five and we're one win away, like you can taste the Stanley Cup. You can feel it. You can smell it. You can all, like you're right there. And something that all of us is, as kids had dreamed about and it's right there. It's hard not to think about. And then you go and lose the next two games and you fail. Um, it was very, very difficult for me uh, personally. And, you know, you look at a guy like Warner, that was the third time he'd been in the Stanley cup finals and lost. And it was just heartbreaking for, for all of us to put that amount of time and effort in and get that close uh, and lose. Yeah, well, and that's uh, it's incredible the level of detail you can recall all these years later. It just goes to show you how uh, how how burned in your mind those those runs are. Um, so so you played in in Calgary for a few more years after that. Um, you never never achieved you know uh, Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Finals again, um, but unquestionably uh, a leader in, on that team, um, a rock in the in the Western Conference. Uh, uh, you know, all, obviously the team, you, the road was always through Calgary and, and the road to, to Kiprasov was through, <clears throat> through you. Um, and then, and then one day there's, a, there's a, a trade to Buffalo or, or, or word of a trade. Um, you know, can you, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what that looked like for you? Yeah. So for us in, in Calgary, after the, the run in 2004, you know, we had a good team and we, we believed it. Uh, but what happened next year, we, we lost the entire season to the, uh, to the lockout. And uh, the, uh, Gary Bettman wanted to implement a salary cap, and he sacrificed an entire season for it. So, you know, a good team, we, had, we had a good team. Well, now you're, you're a year older. And so we come back uh, the next season, and, you know, we had over 100 points. I think we, we won the division. Um, but we lost uh, in Game 7 in the first round to... Uh, a very good Anaheim team that was playing very good hockey coming in. And then, you know, the next season, again, first round loss, first round loss. And, and our team was just, we, we, we became kind of a, an, a team that was getting older and the, um, the results were, were just slowly in decline. And so um, I kind of saw that personally. And what was important to, to me was, um, you know, winning and, and trying to be involved in, in a winner. That's, that's why one of the reason, main reasons why I played hockey was to win. So after the, uh, I think it was the, the 10 season, 2010 season, uh, the 2010-2011 maybe, uh, we, had a, we had a general manager by the name of uh, Jay Feaster uh, that was in charge of the Flames. And what he did was uh, we, we didn't live up to expectations and he brought in all the players that had long-term contracts. So no movement clauses, no trade clauses and these long-term deals. And he met with all of them. And what he did was um, he, he just fired questions at us about the whole organization, about what we thought of the trainers, what we thought of the, the coaching staff, what we thought of, uh, players, ourselves, how we played, you know, everything just really grilled us. And so he did that to me for two to three hours and then he was done. And so uh, I said, okay, Jay, like, you know, you've had a chance to to grill me 
I said, can I ask you some questions? I said, what are you going to do to make our team better? And he said, well, I'm going to try to trade this guy and that guy. And I said, well, they have no trade clauses or they have no movement clauses. What, what are you going to do if you can't? He's like, well, then we're stuck. And that's when the salary cap had started coming in and, and cap issues were, were prevalent. So, you know, really to me, it looked like his hands were going to be tied. So I said, you know, Jay, I would like to win. And um, if there are other opportunities out there that would fit, you know, kind of that, that, you know, allow me to potentially be part of a winning team and to help the Flames, you know, resolve some of their cap issues, I said, I, I would be willing to look at those options or explore those options. That was it. That was very, it was kind of a very broad um, kind of statement. And so what happened was, uh, we went back to, to the lake. Uh, my wife and I went back to the lake. Uh, by that point, we'd uh, had one, one child, Wyatt, and uh, she was very pregnant with, uh, with our second. And I get a phone call just like days before the, the Stanley Cup uh, uh, draft, or the, the prospect uh, draft. And uh, so that would have been probably mid-June mid or the 20th of June, and Jay, it's Jay Feaster on the line. He's like, we'd like to trade you to Buffalo. And so he hadn't called me, hadn't said anything after our meeting. And all of a sudden, just a phone call saying, we'd like you to, and I had a no movement clause. We'd like you to waive your no movement clause to go to Buffalo. Well, it was, I was surprised. And, and you know, the fact that uh, I phoned my agent right away and my agent was, was very angry because he said, you know, with these no movement clauses, um, it is a kind of industry practice to talk to the player, talk to the agent and work with them on getting them to a situation that might work for both the player and the team. So to, to have some involvement. And he said, Jay Feaster has not done that. So my agent uh, was, was pretty disappointed and mad. So what he did was uh, he actually leaked the trade. He said, just leave it with me. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. And so my agent leaked the trade to, uh, to I think it was Darren Dreger, you know, at, at TSN. And he's like, uh, and I didn't fully realize what he was doing at the time, but I do now after the fact. But what he wanted to do was just open up the playing field for all teams uh, to know that Robin Regeer was in play. And so, uh, so that's what he did. So it led to some really interesting situations because um, I had Buffalo phoning me saying, hey, we'd like you to waive your no movement to come to Buffalo. And we they've got new ownership there with the Pagulas, Terry and Kim Pagula. Uh, Lindy Ruff was the coach. They actually flew up and um, visited us at the cabin and to talk about the team and what they were doing. Um, but I, I couldn't do it right away, Gord, even though I, I felt that was the right move. I couldn't do it because my agent was still trying to work kind of the back channels and he knew there were other teams that were interested in me, but the flames hadn't explored those options. So right. it was a way that he could kind of facilitate that. So I had to, I, I had to wait and not waive my no movement for about five to six days. So the interesting part of it was to, to the fans in Buffalo, um, who didn't know everything that was going on. It looked like I didn't want to come to the Buffalo Sabres, which was not the case. We, we just had to make sure that we were exploring as many options as we could so we could make the best decision 
possible for for me and my family because ultimately I had a no movement clause. I'd given up um, money for a no movement clause, and I was just trying to fully utilize that. And and so the the whole thing played out in that the fact that really Calgary wouldn't trade me within the Western uh, Conference. They wanted me to go out east. Uh, Buffalo allowed that, and uh, that that potential Buffalo trade allowed that to happen. And for me, I, I talked to Christina and I talked to a bunch of people that had been in Buffalo, lots of former players, and they said, it'll be a new experience for you. You'll, you'll be out east, uh, travel's easy. You know, I wasn't used to a bunch of players out there, but we, we'd be living in a new country uh, in the States and just a, bun- a bunch of new experiences with hockey. And I knew what I was getting if I stayed in Calgary. I knew our team wasn't going anywhere. And... Uh, and Buffalo could be just all these new experiences that would make hockey um, just kind of uh, fun and exciting again for, for me. So we decided to uh, to waive, but it wasn't until I think approximately a week after the original trade kind of happened. So yeah, it, it was a really interesting little uh, situation that uh, and and the way it played out. So so you get down to Buffalo and you you get things uh sorted out and, and you're living in a new country playing in the east um the you know the success that uh you, you were looking for when you when you volunteered to to uh possibly waive your no movement clause um ultimately didn't uh didn't come to you in buffalo um so so you you ended up moving moving on again uh in, into la uh to the kings um can you talk a little bit about how how that transition came about and, and some of the things that you guys were, were weighing maybe more heavily this time than you were, were the previous time. Yeah, I, I can actually. And I learned a lot from not having uh, personal success and team success in, in Buffalo. Um, our team um, was coached by uh, Lindy Ruff, who, uh, you know, he, his, his kind of strategy was a lot different than uh, what I was used to, especially in the defensive zone. And um, it was it was really just come back, flood the zone, try to get the puck back as quickly as we could, and everyone off and, and go back on offense. Offense was the main kind of driver of his uh, philosophy. And so for me, that was very different. And I learned a lot about myself in my struggles there because what I found, Gord, was that... Uh, I played better for a coach and a team that uh, has has a system that has a lot more structure in it, and and for me, I I like that. I know what are my teammates and what I'm supposed to do and where my teammates are supposed to be, and then I don't have to read what what's going on with our own team with my own teammates and me because I know it, it's there, and. And they're executing. So you just have to kind of understand what's going on with the opposition, what they're trying to do offensively in, in our zone and attacking and, and make your uh, make your reads that way. Um, in Buffalo, I, st- I really struggled with that. And and we, we because we were such a let's get the, just get the puck back and, and go on offense. It led to uh, a lot of different dynamic situations coming back on the rush and trying to make different reads all the time and. And that and and it was hard. It was really difficult for me, and I and I didn't play well on, under that kind of structure and, and system. And so um, when 
when I heard that Los Angeles was interested in in trading for me because uh, they had a so they had won in 2012 their first Stanley Cup, but in 13 uh, they had lost Willie Mitchell, one of their veteran defensemen, to a, a kind of a serious knee injury. So Daryl Sutter was the coach uh, there in uh, in LA at the time, and he was uh, beating down. Uh, Dean Lombardi's door to my understanding about needing a, a veteran defenseman and and he knew what he was going to get with me potentially so so LA comes knocking on Buffalo's door and uh, when that happened I was very excited because I understood what Daryl wanted I understood what structure he he wanted how demanding he was but I understood how he wanted the the players and the team to to play under him and and I I play well under that that system so um, it was about winning and the, and the ability to win. And I was in really the tail end of my career at that time, getting older. And so, uh, so when the opportunity came and, and there was a potential trade and Darcy Regeer from uh, the Sabres phoned me, I was on the road with the guys in Pittsburgh at the time. And he said, you know, we'd, LA wants to trade for you. Would you waive your no movement clause? And so I phoned Christina and, and we talked about it and said, yeah, let's let's go. Let's, it's back to the Western Conference, a conference that I was more um, comfortable with, players I knew, tendencies. And that's something I didn't talk about in the East was I studied uh, players' tendencies. And I didn't know a lot of the players in the East uh, as well as I knew players in the West because we just didn't play those teams as much when I was in Calgary. So I was I was learning, trying to learn those things too. But I felt way more comfortable out on the West and uh, off, uh, off we went to Los Angeles with the uh, ability to potentially uh, contend, contend for the Stanley Cup. And, and personally, that was all I wanted at the time, was uh, just that opportunity. Well, and, uh, and contend you did. I mean, uh, obviously, 2014, the, the steps they took to correct issues um, worked. Uh, you guys won the Stanley Cup. Uh, walked through uh, obviously four difficult rounds and, and, and were able to hoist the, the, the Stanley cup and, and kind of achieve the whole, the whole dream. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about uh, how, how that validated some of the decisions that you'd made and, and, and then obviously just how, how unbelievable a feeling that was. Yeah. So I, I got there in 2013 and uh, right at the, because it was a, a lockout-shortened season that year, uh, but um, I got there and, and things went well. You know, I just, I felt comfortable under the, the system and, and Daryl and, you know, got a chance to meet the players and, you know, obviously a, a great place to play hockey uh, with a competitive team and, um, and also, you know, the, the, the teammates there were, were fantastic. Um, but we go into the playoffs that year in 13 and, uh, we get to the Western conference final. And just before that, that starts, uh, so we were meeting Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, I get a yellow post-it note that's stuck on my vehicle and it's, uh, it's a post-it note from Dean Lombardi that says three, three, and then two and a half. Come see me in my office, Dean. So, um, so I walk up to Dean Lombardi's office and uh, walk in and he says, you know, Robin, we, uh, 
we like what you, what you bring to the team. We like how you fit in, and uh, we'd like to sign you to a three year contract. And so I, I I heard him and and kind of kind of processed it all. And I just turned around and looked at him and said, you know, Dean, um, I feel from um, a, a variety of different aspects, both kind of mentally, physically, uh, that I can play for two more years at a level that I'm, I'm happy with and that I'm a contributing kind of factor to the team. But I said, but I thought in my mind, like after that two years, I don't know, you know, injuries had started to, to pile up for me, multiple knee injuries and things like that. And, and I just didn't know after that. Uh, and so I said, I, I could, how about we, we talk about a two year contract and then uh, we can just deal with with uh, a potentially another year um, after that, that two years is up or see, see where things are at. And uh, I'll never forget it. He looked uh, back at me and said, you know, Robin, I've never had a player uh, be as uh, uh, open and honest uh, about uh, a situation and, and really, you know, cut off uh, a year of their contract offer that uh, he was, he was putting, uh, putting out there to me. Uh, but, you know, I just felt strongly at that point that, uh, you know, I was there to, to potentially be part of a team that won. I wanted to be a contributing kind of factor to that. And that was that was it. I wasn't there to to prolong my career as long as possible or to make as much money as I possibly could. I just I just wanted to win and a chance to win. So it was an interesting negotiation. Uh, obviously, uh, my agent wasn't too uh, too happy with me, but, uh, you know, my agent, uh, he works for me. So I was happy and that was uh, that was what mattered. But uh, we ended up losing to the Chicago Blackhawks uh, that next round in the Western Conference Final, and they went on to win in 13. In 14, uh, we had a good season, um, and uh, we talked about what team, again, back to what Daryl wants, we talked about what team we wanted to meet in the first round, that 14 season in the playoffs, and it was the San Jose Sharks. We felt we had the best possible chance against the Sharks. But what happened was, we had our playoff spot solidified early and and the last i want to say seven games eight games we didn't play well i think we lost five of the last seven games or something like that it was we did not play good hockey leading up to the playoffs and so the first round starts then and end of the season end of the regular season first round starts playoffs we get absolutely demolished in the first two games in San Jose, like it wasn't even close. They ran us, <laughs> they ran us out of the rink, and and uh, you know that that kind of poor um, performance, poor attitude of those last few games in the regular season carried over directly to those first two games. And you know, through that, Daryl uh, kept saying to us, you know, you guys need a better attitude. You got to change your attitude. And and the third game back in LA. Uh, I believe went to overtime and we lost. So we were down three, nothing. So there was only three teams that had ever come down, uh, back from a three, nothing deficit in the Stanley cup finals, uh, or not Stanley cup finals in the Stanley cup playoffs before. And the prior team that most recently had done that was, uh, the team in Philadelphia with, uh, both, uh, Jeff Carter and Mike Richards were on that team. Well, it just so happened that we had Jeff Carter and Mike Richards on our team in L.A. in, in 2014. So game four starts. We're down 3 nothing, 
And uh, we just played a much better game. We ended up winning game four. And we ended up winning game five, winning game six. So now the San Jose Sharks have gone from up 3 nothing. Uh, there's only been three teams that have ever, uh, you know, come back from that. And here they are facing game seven in their, in their rink. All the pressure was on the Sharks. And uh, we, we absolutely, I, I think it was like 5-1, 6-1. It wasn't even close, the end of uh, game seven. We demolished them in, uh, in San Jose and, and ended up coming back to win. So we were the fourth team ever to, uh, to come back from that 3 nothing deficit. You know, and then for me personally, I got, I got injured in the second round against Anaheim. But our team was on a roll and uh, playing well. We, uh, we actually ended up winning on the road in game seven in Anaheim. Uh, really, the, um, the, the, the biggest part of that, that run was the next series in that we met uh, our nemesis in the Chicago Blackhawks. And if, if you ever have a chance, anyone has a chance to watch the 2014 playoffs, uh, please watch the uh, L.A. Uh, Chicago Blackhawks series of the Western Conference Final. It's just an amazing series. And uh, anyone that, uh, that can, uh, has done it or watched is Alec Martinez scores the overtime winner in Game 7 on the road in Chicago for us to go on to the Stanley Cup Finals. And, and really, that was the big hurdle for us. Uh, it, was a, it was a decent series in uh in the stanley cup finals with the rangers but really uh it it was it was i wouldn't say it was just you know a moot point but uh we we had a pretty good feeling of our team uh by the time we got to the finals against uh against the rangers and again alec martinez strikes in overtime for the uh, spirit i like to call it the spirit hands uh celebration after uh, mm-hmm. after he scores but uh we ended up winning, and and it was just an amazing, amazing feeling for uh, for all of us there. A bunch of the team in LA had won in 2012, but uh, there was a group of us that that hadn't. And for me, it was a 10-year journey back from when in 2004 when I'd been uh, in Calgary and in the finals to 2014, and and it was a very different experience in that you know I was I was injured, I was wasn't playing in the finals, but. I didn't care. I, at that point, I'm at the tail end of my career. I just wanted to be part of a, of a championship team, and I was fortunate enough that, uh, that that I was. And kind of a funny little story I like to tell is that uh, Colin Fraser and I uh, weren't playing in in uh, the finals, and there was a group of young guys that weren't uh, weren't playing either. But uh, game five happens, and uh, and we go over go into overtime. And all the young guys get dressed in their gear. And we're, we're in the back. We're in the back kind of training room, um, players lounge area. And they, they all get dressed right at the start of uh, the overtime. And just in case that we, that we score and they can run out there and be part of the celebrations. Well, Fraser, Colin Fraser looks at me and he says, what are you going to do, Robin? And I was like, I don't know. You know, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right to assume that that we're going to win this and, and that. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get dressed. I just want to wait and see what happens. Cause, and, and he, you know, he looks at me and says, I agree. Uh, I'm not getting dressed either. So there we are two old guys sitting there and, and we watch Alec Martinez score while we were jumping up and down and, and high-fiving and you name it. But then we had to quickly get dressed. So <laughs> I think that was a, I think that was the fastest I've ever got dressed in my gear, but my hands are shaking. I'm trying to tie my skates and, and that, and, 
and uh, I get out there and, and are part of the celebrations and uh, it was just, it was fantastic. Uh, and, and, you know, the guys were excited and, and my family was there in the, in the crowd. And when Dustin Brown um, accepted the Stanley cup and, uh, and, you know, skated around and, and celebrated and, and came and did the first handoff to me, um, that was a very, very special um, emotional moment. And one that uh, I'm very happy that I was able to share uh, the Stanley Cup uh, and that experience with my my family later on as as just a way of saying, you know, thank you. Thank you for being a part of the journey. Thank you for being there in the in the car crash and the recovery and everything going on there. Thank you for for taking me to and making the commitment um, to, to minor hockey and driving me around to all those different towns and rinks and working bingos for fundraising and things like that. It was just a really nice way where I could say thank, thank you for doing that and share the experience. And that, that to me is what made uh, that whole experience very special. Yeah. And I guess um, obviously your, your peers, you know, deciding that you get the cup first after, after it's been awarded, that's like, that, that's a, like an internal award amongst the team. Right. And that's something that no matter what happens injured or not, you never get that taken away. That's, that's a, a pretty uplifting, um, uh, story. And, and the fact that you kind of tied it all into with all the people that helped you to get to, to that position, you know, it, he wasn't just handing it off to you. So that's, that's really, really cool. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious a little bit about how, like, did you know at that point that, that that was the closure from 04 and all the different things that you'd done trying to win and putting yourself in the best position for success at that point, you know, when, when the, obviously everything calms down, the chaos calms down. Uh, was that, was that it, it for you? Did you know you were done? Uh, you know, you know, I, I didn't know. Um, I, I didn't feel like I was, I was done hockey, uh, because, um, you know, I had another year on my contract. That was, that was, um, you know, I said I previously, I felt like I could play two years. So I had one more year left for me, but I, I made that decision before even, even winning the, the, the Stanley cup, right? Like it, it wasn't, my decision just didn't hinge on, well, the caveat is I have to win before I'm, I'm okay. What it did provide though, Gord was, um, was closure on an old wound, of uh and and we spoke about it of 2004 it had been 10 years but really still the heartbreak and and going through that being that close and and the failure putting in that much f time and effort and getting that close and failing that what that hurt and getting a chance to hoist the the cup and sharing it with friends and family and and you know as as previously mentioned just the whole experience of it uh it it allowed me to heal that wound of, of 2004 personally. And I was very thankful for that. But I also realized that not a lot of players get a chance. Like Rhett still didn't. Um, Jerome didn't. Lots of players didn't. Andrew Ferentz was a lucky one that he won in, in, in uh, Boston in uh, 2011, I believe. So he was able to come to some closure. But many players from that 2004 Calgary Flames team did not have that opportunity. And I, and I'm still very aware of, of that. And, and I realize how fortunate, uh, I am because I was able to do that. Um, 
as for kind of wrapping up my my career, I, I had another year, and my thought of previously being able to play two years was was probably ambitious by one year because that last year of my career, my my knee, um, my knee was kind of a, a weak link um, for for me, and I'd had multiple knee injuries, and uh, I had I had to try to get through the season uh, by taking multiple cortisone shots uh, in. Uh, I got some uh, PRP injections done to my MCL as well, and it was a. I, I had a hard time turning uh, and pivoting one way because my knee was so so sore. And I, you know, I remember in Los Angeles at the at the PRP uh, clinic, and there was a doctor that you know I like to ask people questions, and so you know I said, well, how can you tell uh, what kind of shape my MCL is in? And and how many injections have you done? He's like, well, I've done thousands of these. And, and he's, he said, uh, the reason I, or how I can tell what kind of shape your MCL is in is, is how much fluid it will take, how, how porous that, that MCL is. And he said, yours is very porous and it's in, it's in tough shape. So here, here I am hearing from uh, a, a guy that's done this thousands of times telling me how bad a shape my MCL is in. So it was a very, rea- it was kind of a, a sobering uh, reality check for me. And, and so I still had to get through that, that season, which I did, but uh, I, I probably played one season too long from a physical standpoint. But uh, you know what? You make decisions on, on the best possible information you have at the time. And, and, uh, and that's what I did. Yeah, and I mean that's a uh, when when your uh, body's been what what makes your living for that many years, you know you're you're fairly in tune with it, and and you you know these things, and sometimes you're you don't know, I guess, and that's like I as I'm getting older, I'm obviously not a professional athlete, but I do things that I used to be able to do, and it makes me sore for longer, and and that's just part of growing up and getting old and accepting that, which. Um, like I said, with your profile would have, would have been a, a much bigger decision to make. Um, and, and so many more factors going into it. Right. Well, yeah. And, and the mental side of it is huge too, because, you know, as a young player, when you have injuries, uh, you're able to bounce back quicker and, and your, you, you know, your body heals faster. Uh, but at that point in my career, it was 15 years in and, you know, multiple major injuries, um, also ones we outside of hockey, as we, we discussed earlier. And the mental side of it, it takes a toll of trying to bounce back, trying to go through all the rehab, your body not reacting always the way you want. And, you know, before when you're younger, maybe you do take two steps forward and one step back in your recovery process. But then your, your body is, is starting to tell you no. And later on in, in, in the career, um, you know, it's two steps backwards, one step forward. And, and mentally, it becomes much more difficult to kind of come back from, from the injuries. And, and you're not as excited to come back from the injuries. And the days that, uh, you know, it's, it's harder to go to the rink because you're hurting um, outweigh the ones that are the good days. And, and it, it becomes a little bit easier to kind of factor that in to making the, the transition away from, uh, from hockey. So, so I guess now that you're kind of at that point in your life, 
we kind of come full circle back to to when you were younger and you had a lot of different um, interests and and proclivities and different things you enjoyed. Uh, so so how does that kind of fit into life after hockey for you? You're you're finishing up your career. Uh, you, you're down in LA. Um, your your family's by and large still back in Canada. Um, I, I think probably home for in in terms of the NHL for you was Calgary after 11 years there. Can you can you talk a little bit about about kind of how that all rolled up? Uh, your your wife at this point you've got a wife and two kids. Um, they've got uh, there's some considerations there. Can you can you run us through kind of how that looks? Well, for us, uh, Christina wanted to live in L.A. full time because the weather was uh, outstanding. And uh, as I've uh, I've told multiple people, I think the most difficult decision you had to make at the start of the day in L.A. was to whether you're going to put shorts, uh, shorts on or wear pants that day. Like it's just it's sunny and and uh, the climate's just so mild that uh, it's actually quite an easy place to, to live that way and very different than what we were used to. But um, um, because we moved to the States at, a, at kind of the tail end of, of my career in Buffalo and L.A., um, I didn't uh, apply for a green card or do any of that kind of stuff. So um, I always felt it was important for us to come back to Canada um, as a family to be around our extended family and support network up there and um, our, our families, both Christina's and, and my family, were, were based mainly in, in Western Canada, mostly Saskatchewan, but, but in other parts of Western Canada as well. So that's an area I thought we would gravitate uh, back towards. Um, Business-wise, uh, I had some other interests. And so I grew up uh, working on a farm, actually, and, uh, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. And so throughout my NHL career, I... I I started uh, purchasing some farmland uh, just west of Rostern when uh, I was given uh, the opportunity. So uh, I was involved with agriculture and I really enjoyed it. And uh, the group of, uh, of farmers that I grew up working for, actually, uh, they, they're now the, the group that I, I mainly rent the land back to. So it was kind of full circle and that started working for them. And now I'm, uh, I'm a kind of a, a landlord uh, dealing with them uh, that way and uh, still have a great relationship with them. And uh, they allow me to uh, come out and drive all their fancy equipment and, and usually mm-hmm. a few days at, uh, at harvest, get out there and, and bring, uh, bring our two boys out there and, and just see how food production with conventional farming is, is done uh, on, a, on a fairly, uh, fairly large scale there, which, which is a lot of fun for, for our kids and a lot of fun for me and, and educational. So, so that, uh, that was happening, uh, at the time of my career and also started, uh, an oil field, uh, service company called blue line oil field rentals with, uh, two minority partners. And so that was going on during my hockey career. So I had other interests, uh, uh other than hockey, uh, kind of all throughout my career. And so, um, for me, I, I enjoyed those, I would say more and more as my career progressed. And so, um, even though I lost uh, a lot when uh, when I when I kind of went away from hockey, a lot of what I was used to with uh, 
you know, being around the guys and, and the team atmosphere uh, of, a, of a high performance kind of group with an NHL team, uh, the structure um, and all the kind of rigid, like the rigid structure, almost military like, and, you know, be here at this time. And this is the way you need to look and dress and, you know, all that. It's a very structured kind of environment um, to after that, to more of a fluid environment and in that, uh, you know, I had to prioritize what my days look like and prioritize family and and what I wanted to do business-wise and also be involved with the Flames alumni and things. Like, but it doesn't sound like much probably to a lot of people, but when you grow up in, the, in a very long period of time in an extremely structured kind of environment and what you're doing and how you're told to do it and a very clearly defined role as a as a player on a team, um, it's a it's a very different transition to kind of a more of an entrepreneurial type of of role and uh, a very dynamic role. And so uh, that's been something I've actually really enjoyed. It hasn't always been easy, but uh, it's it's just you know another challenge to uh, to have to try to face and figure out. That's uh, yeah. It's I mean I can imagine the the changes um, are are many. But there, there has to be a lot of uh, a lot of the attributes that you developed uh, in your in your first career uh, discipline and um, you know the the research portion to make good decisions that that has to be a benefit in in farming in uh, service companies in in any of the things you're doing uh, you know the, those skills aren't mutually exclusive to your first career um, I'd have to think that that you draw on on some of those skills often. Yeah, you, you're exactly right in that. And I was able to, to think about it a little bit more in that, uh, yes, I was in a little bit different environment or different, different industry even. But um, being involved with, with a team and a high-performing team in hockey, uh, you look at it, everyone has their roles, responsibilities. You want, you want clear understanding from your coach on what expectations are. You want to have segments where you understand, are we, are we meeting those goals? Are we on track to meet the goals? Well, you know, building a, a service company, you have all kinds of different people. We had multiple people in the field. We had people in the office. So, you know, you, you had your players, so to speak. You had your coach, your, your general manager, and you still want to be a high-performing team. And you are a team. And we, we tried to build that, that uh, team camaraderie. Um, with with our service company, um, we tried to build uh, a level of expectation. Uh, we tried to to build a level of accountability, and all that is direct correlation. Uh, whether you're talking about an NHL team, uh, a service company, uh, you know, a, a big high performing corporate farm, uh, whatever it is, there's there's lots that uh, can be can be drawn on. So I, at this point, I'd just like to turn it over to you. Is there, is there a, a last word that you'd like to leave anybody who happens to be listening to this with uh, uh, a lesson, um, that, that one saying that kind of got you through? Is there anything that, that we haven't touched on uh, that, that you'd like to chat about? Uh, I'd just like to give it back to you here before we wrap up. Well, one of the, one of the most important lessons that uh, I think my dad ever taught myself and, and, uh, and us was, uh, uh, just do, do it right. If you're, if you're going to do it, do it right. 
And uh, he taught us that lesson by, um, he, he gave us the opportunity to rake a bunch of uh, low-income homes uh, that he he was in charge of looking after for the government in, in Rostern there and dealing with. And he said, uh, you know, you guys go out and, and rake all these lawns and, you know, I'll, I'll pay you whatever it was, five bucks an hour to, to do it at the time. And and my brothers and I did it and we um, we worked it like I think it took us two or three days to rake all these lawns. And we just thought it was it was the hardest thing in the world. And he came by and checked on it after after we were done and he looked at us and it was the look of disappointment and he said you know you guys didn't do a good job your your quality wasn't there and because of that uh you're gonna have to do it again he's like just just do it right the first time and then you don't have to do it again or someone else doesn't have to come in and and do it again and do it again and so i'll, I'll never forget that it's like you know just just do it right the first time and and you or someone else won't have to to deal with it and uh that's that's what i'd like to leave uh, leave it with after listening to robin's story or the many stories that make up the career he has had to this point it is apparent that there is no one way to success the choices you make all the way along that you think are putting you in a position to succeed really rely on things outside of your influence he talked about coaches systems and how he flourished in some and suffered in others through no fault of his own but the thing that I took away from that was his effort was unwavering and unaffected by the outside noise. He understood what he wanted and was willing to do whatever it took to put himself in a position to achieve those goals. The common thread I found throughout his story, whether it was hockey or his life since hockey, is that his success isn't attributed all to skill or natural talent. There were a lot of lessons in the discussion that anyone can pluck out and apply to their life. And how great was the yellow sticky note contract negotiation story he even left the best part out the windshield that he found it on was in his old f-250 in a parking garage full of maseratis and aston martins i suppose there's a lesson there too i want to thank everyone who has joined us on the ride so far i believe that we are at the beginning of a really fun journey to discover some cool relatable stories remember that kindness always wins just because someone looks fine doesn't mean they are and all it may take is you asking if they need a helping hand or a willing ear. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Second Act Podcast. Find us on IG at the Second Act Pod, where we are always looking to interact and appreciate any feedback. As always, there are no wrong answers and there is no test at the end. So make the most of each day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening.